Today is an important day here at First Baptist because today we begin a five-week emphasis on the purpose of the church. In the next five weeks, we're going to be thinking about why are we here as a church? And I think it maybe would make sense to just begin by looking at our mission statement. I know we talk about this, but we haven't talked about it in a while. So here it is. The mission statement of our church is right there. Let's say it together. To help all people experience new life in Jesus Christ. Now take that off. We, we have just proven we can read, right? We just read that together. So we're going to take that off the screens today. And I want to just see if you can say that even without me helping you. Hopefully it's down in your heart. One, two, three. That's exactly right. And so today we're going to be thinking about the first half of that mission statement to help all people. Those four words today, that's all we're thinking about, to help. The church is not here to hurt people. We're here to help people. And we're not just here to help some people. We're here to help all people, to help all people. That is our emphasis and that's our focus today. So if you have your Bible, please open it to the Gospel of Luke in chapter number 10. And for our first graders today, the Bible that you just received, if you can find page 1256, 1256, that's where we're going to be today. Luke chapter 10, I can't think of a better passage of Scripture in all the Bible that talks about the importance of helping people any more than the parable of the Good Samaritan. This is a story that Jesus told, and it really makes the point. So let's begin Luke chapter 10 and in verse number 25. And a certain, and behold, a certain lawyer, that is an expert in the Jewish law. This was a Jewish man. He stood up and tested Jesus saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do? Now, this man was a, was a lawyer. And so what he was really saying here is, what are the laws that I have to keep so that one day I can go to heaven? What must I do? I don't want to miss out on heaven. And so that was his question. And so Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered rightly, do this and you will live. What Jesus was saying to this, this legalist, He was saying, if you want to go to heaven by keeping the law, here's the deal. Keep all of it and keep it perfectly. I heard a pastor say something one time, and when he said it, I said, that man's wrong. But the more I thought about it, I thought, no, he's right. The pastor said this. He said, there are three ways to go to heaven. I thought, three ways? There's only one way, Jesus. He said, there are three ways to go to heaven. He said, way number one, die before you reach the age of accountability. God doesn't hold a child responsible when they don't know the difference in right and wrong and they don't know anything about God. So that's one way to go to heaven. Another way to go to heaven is to live a perfect life. I mean, you know, uh, and, and yet none of us here today, or at least most of us here today, are far past the age of accountability. And I think we would all admit that we have not lived a perfect life. And so the third way, and really practically the only way for us to get to heaven at this point is to confess our sins and ask Jesus to save us. Now, When Jesus said to this man, if you want to go to heaven by keeping the law, you got to love God perfectly, all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And you've got to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, had I been this man and Jesus said that to me, I would have said, now, wait a second, Lord, we've already got a problem. You know that I love you, 
But sometimes I'm guilty of loving other things maybe more than you and I get my priorities out of line and it's like I have an idol as it were. And so, Lord, I don't love you perfectly. And as far as loving my, loving my neighbor as myself, I do love my, I love my neighbor, I love my friends, but God, I've gotta be honest, sometimes I hold a grudge. Sometimes I have a bitter spirit. Sometimes I get angry. And so, Lord, you're telling me that the way for me to go to heaven is to love you perfectly and love people perfectly, and I've got to confess to you I've done neither, and so I'm asking you to give me mercy and grace and forgiveness. And that's the response that Jesus was hoping to elicit from this man, but that's not the response that he got. This man was a legalist, and he wanted to justify himself. In fact, looking in verse 29, we see that clearly. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus... And who is my neighbor? <laughs> this is a legalist. He's saying, if I've got to love my neighbor, I'll do that, but tell me who he is because I don't want to love anybody I don't have to. And so in verse 30, Jesus answered and said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest came down that road. This is a religious leader. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite. This is another religious leader. When he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. And so the religious people did the man absolutely no good. Verse 33, but a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, that's two days' wages. You think about what you make in two days, well, that's what this man spent, and gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, take care, care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among thieves? And he said, he who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Now, we're thinking on these five Sundays about why we're here as a church. Why has God placed the church in the world? Why in our community, with all the schools and all the businesses and all the restaurants, why has God placed our church here on the corner of Fairmont and Red Bluff? Well, we just said the answer to that, to help all people experience new life in Jesus Christ. Now, what we're doing today, we're thinking about the people that we're trying to reach. What are these people like? There are thousands of people around us today. Some of them are just waking up. Some of them are, are, they've been up for a while, but they're not in church. And many of them don't know the Lord. And we're here to help them to know Christ. You students, I'm just continuing to be amazed at how many students. We finally have now some girls on the front row. It's getting better around here at First Baptist. We've had all these guys. Now we've got girls moving up on these front rows. You're in school with friends who don't go to church and who don't know the Lord. And so today we're trying to think about what's it like being them? What's it like being unsaved? What's it like not having a relationship with God? Well, the man in this parable gives us a beautiful picture of what it's like to be without God. Notice as we think about this man, notice first of all, he was alone. Look back in verse 30. Jesus answered and said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Notice Jesus didn't say certain men or a certain man and his family or a certain man and his friends 
or a certain group of men. No, he just said a certain man. This man was all alone. Now let's think for just a moment about what it's like to be alone. Let's think about being alone. The first thing I would say about being alone is being alone is, is not all bad. And in fact, being alone is sometimes good. We need to be alone sometimes. I feel sorry for a person who can't ever be alone. They have to always have people and chatter and noise. I feel sorry for that person because we need to be alone in our Bible reading. We need to be alone in our prayer time. We need to have times alone for meditation and thinking and to refresh ourselves and to renew our mind and to hear from God. And so being alone is is a good thing sometimes. But God never intended for us to be alone all the time. In Genesis 2, God said it's not good that the man should be alone. And yet many people are alone. These thousands of people around us, we say we want to have 15,000, 10% of our community and our church on Sundays. We've got a long way to go, but God's leading us in the right direction. What is it about these people that we need to understand? We need to understand that they are alone. If you think about this, there is a sense in which unsaved people are always alone, even if they're with other people, because they have this hole in their heart that only God can feel, and they're going to feel lonely until Jesus fills that hole. And there is a sense in which those of us who are saved, we're never alone because we always have Jesus. And yet, even those of us who are saved, we need the companionship. We need to be together with our brothers and sisters in Christ. There's nothing worse than being alone. Billy Graham used to say the biggest problem in the world today to the over 200 countries he preached in and all the millions of or 185 countries and over 200 million he preached to. He said the biggest problem today is loneliness. People feel alone. And maybe today, even in this beautiful room, Here you are. Maybe you're alone today. Maybe you're with your family or friends. But either way, you feel alone and you feel disconnected. You feel isolated. And you feel like nobody understands what I'm going through. Nobody understands what I'm facing. Nobody knows that I'm depressed. Nobody knows that this smile is not always genuine and real. I just put my best foot forward. And some in this room today undoubtedly would say, I feel very alone. The psalmist felt that way. Look at this, Psalm 102. The psalmist said, I'm like a pelican of the wilderness. I'm like an owl of the desert. Do you ever feel like that, an owl up there on that tree? I'm alone. Some of you today feel that way. You say, I am like an owl of the desert, and nobody gives a hoot about me, right? You just feel alone. And then notice what he says. I lie awake, and I'm like a sparrow alone on the housetop. The psalmist is saying, man, I'm in a tough spot in my life. I just feel alone. The message of the church to our community is you don't have to be alone. You can receive Jesus Christ. You'll never be alone again. And when you receive him, you receive a body of brothers and sisters so that you never have to be alone. That's the importance of the church. Look what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes chapter uh, four, as he's comparing being by yourself to having somebody with you. He said, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And then he says this, though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. So here, that the third person in that court is Jesus. Many times at a wedding, we say that. We say, the two of you are coming together. You're forming a bond. Two are better than one. This is a good thing. 
And since you're both Christians, it's even a better thing because you have Jesus. And he is the third part of the first part, actually, but in this analogy, he's the third part of the cord. And so this is a beautiful thing. Two are better than one. It's not good to be alone. And then in Hebrews chapter 10, this shows us how the church fits in with this. Notice what it says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Now, let's just, just think of that phrase. Say, just read that. Not forsaking, say it out loud, the assembling of ourselves together. Some translations say not neglecting. Here it says not forsaking. Many people have forsaken going to church on Sundays. Some people haven't forsaken it. They just neglect it. Some weeks they do and some weeks they don't. Some people that are not saved, they've never had the experience. It says as is the manner of some, but exhorting or encouraging one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. And so the point I'm trying to make is This man was alone, and because he was alone, he got out there and he got in trouble. And many times in life, people feel alone, and if they're not saved, they're doubly alone, and so we need to understand that. We're not just trying to connect them with us. We're trying to connect them first and foremost to Jesus, so they'll never be alone, but then to us so that we can be together and we can do life together and go through life together. Now, a second thing about this man, not only was he alone, but he was wounded. And as we think about the people we're trying to reach, many of them are wounded in life. In fact, all of us in life have been wounded at one time or another. Notice again in verse 30, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him, stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, what was so dangerous about being alone and the reason this man got wounded, it said, we read in our Bible, he traveled from Jerusalem to Jericho. We don't think much about that. But here's what we need to realize. That was a 17-mile journey, and it was a 17-mile journey going down, down, down. You, you, you were just getting lower and lower. In fact, within these 17 miles the terrain dropped approximately 3,300 feet. And so it was a very steep mountain that he was going down. And since it was so steep, the road couldn't just be straight down or you couldn't climb up it or you couldn't go down it. You would fall. It'd be like the Grand Canyon. You know, I remember one time I was at the bottom of the Grand Canyon and I looked up at the top of that thing and I thought, Lord, I wish there was an escalator or something to get me out of here. Well, the reason there's not an escalator, it would be too steep. And so you have these switchback trails all, on, all through the Grand Canyon to get you out. Well, same thing here. You're going 17 miles and you're dropping 3,300 feet. And so you had all these trails going back and forth. Now, the problem with that, these trails many times would create crevices and there would be dark spots in the mountain. And it was known for th- thieves were known to hang out. And if they saw a person alone, here, two or three or four thieves, they knew they had them outnumbered. And so this man's going down and he's in a very, very dangerous place. And so we're trying to help people who are wounded. And as I just said, all of us in one way or another have been wounded in life. Today, of course, is September the 11th and we remember what happened 21 years ago today. Everyone here today who was alive at that time and who's old enough to remember that, you remember where you are. It's hard to believe our students have grown up in the post 9-11 experience. You weren't born when 9-11 happened, but the rest of us, most of us here uh, were born when that happened. And we can remember that when those terrorists hijacked those planes and took down the Twin Towers and hit the Pentagon and were going into the Capitol or the White House and those heroes on that plane commandeered the plane from the terrorists and landed in that field. 
And yet on 9-11, what happened? 2,977 innocent lives were lost. And our nation on that day was wounded. I remember where I was. I was home and I saw that and I thought, good night. What is happening in America? And we were wounded as a nation. And yet, let me say this about being wounded because we've all been wounded. Being wounded is bad. But if you respond properly, God can bring much good out of the bad. We were wounded on Tuesday, September the 11th. But the following Sunday, all across America, what did we see? We saw Americans responding properly. The churches were full. People were seeking God, calling on God. God help us. God intervene. Congressmen, senators, political leaders on the steps of the Capitol singing, joined hands together, singing, God bless America. What happened? I'll tell you what happened in in this country after 9-11. We turned to God and we came together. And from my perspective, that is the last time this nation has truly turned to God and come together. I had hoped, I had prayed when the pandemic started in March of 2020, God use this as an occasion where we turn to you and come together. But as a nation, I'm not saying we didn't do it individually, but as a nation, I've not seen that. I've not seen a coming together. I've seen a turning to politics, and I'm not against politics. Thank God for it, and thank God for the government, certainly. We turn to politics instead of turning to God, and instead of coming together, we came apart. And God is saying through these experiences, through these seasons in life when we're wounded, if we will turn to him as a family, turn to him as a church, turn to him as a nation, that we can come together. And yet many times we're wounded. We're wounded by others. Sometimes we're wounded by life itself. Maybe a, maybe a disease, maybe a disappointment, uh, maybe, a, maybe death. Did you know in our own church family, I looked this up, I wanted to know, I asked someone to look this up for me, how many deaths we have had in our church family in the last two and a half years, either church members who have died or the immediate family members of our church members. In 2020, we lost 123 people. In 2021, we lost 167 people. It was about up 25% that year. There were more COVID deaths, and that's what drove that number up. This year so far, we have lost 89 people, and people are wounded. They're wounded because they've been hurt by, by disappointment, by disease, by death. What I'm saying is all these people around us who, who don't go to church, And many of them don't know the Lord. And here we are, and we're thinking, well, how can we reach them? The first thing is we have to get in their mind and understand them. Many of them are alone today. They're feeling lonely, and they are wounded today. And they're trying to do everything they can to salve that wound and, as it were, to almost heal themselves. Did you know today is the first day of the NFL season? I I know you know something as important as that. I know you know that. And so right now, with the exception of the Los Angeles Rams, every team in the NFL is undefeated, right? I mean, every city is ready to go to the Super Bowl right now, undefeated. But by tonight, half the teams in the league will be ready to fire their coach and get a new quarterback, right? But there'll be many people today, and they're watching it right now. They're watching the the pregame show to the games. They're watching it right now. And they'll watch the Texans at noon, and they'll watch the late game, whoever it is, 
and they'll watch Dallas and Tampa Bay tonight. And there's nothing wrong with watching these games, but they'll watch that. And many of them that are watching it, truth be known, they're not even that big of football fans. They're just watching the games and they're with their friends. And what are they trying to do? They're trying to get their mind on something other than the reality of their lives. And for them, sports has become some kind of an escapism. And what are they doing? They're trying to heal and to fix their own wounds. But the scripture says in Psalm 140, in verse three, that God heals the brokenhearted and he binds up their wounds. See, that's the advantage of being saved. They ha- unsaved have wounds, we have wounds. But we have someone to help us to bind our wounds. You remember the, when we were kids, we learned the little poem, Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. Let's see if you can say the rest of it with me. And all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty back together again. You know, there are a lot of people in life who have fallen off the wall and they've called on the king's horses and they've called on the king's men and the king's horses and the king's men couldn't put them back together again. The message of the church, the message of the Bible and the message that we must say to this community is, listen, when you're wounded in life by others, wounded by circumstances, wounded by life itself, wounded in any way, the king's men may not be able to put you together again. The king's horses may not be able to put you back together again, but the king of heaven can put you back together again. He binds up those wounds and he heals the brokenhearted. And so... We have something to offer to those who've been wounded. We have healing to offer. Jesus, among everything else he is, is a healer. He came so that we could be healed of our wounds. But this man in the story, he was alone. He was wounded. And then the third thing I noticed, he couldn't get where he needed to be without some assistance. He needed some help. Man, he was half dead, Jesus said. He couldn't get up and walk and make it down to Jericho. And so this Samaritan came by. And this Samaritan had a first aid kit, undoubtedly, over his shoulder. And he got down on his knees and he got the stuff out of his kit. And he put the wine on there, somewhat as as an antiseptic. And he put the oil on there, somewhat as to, to provide a little healing for that wound. And he took this beaten man, this wounded man, this alone man who was alone, and he put him on his animal. Maybe he had a horse or a donkey, not sure what his animal. He put him on his animal, probably a donkey. And then he led that donkey with that man on top of him. They went down to the city and they found a a, a village. They found an inn. And the Samaritan took that man and said to the innkeeper, listen, this man needs a room. Look at him. He's in bad shape. He needs some rest. And so uh, he put him in a room and the Samaritan stayed with him one night. And the next day, the Samaritan said to the innkeeper, I've got to go to work but if you'll please watch after this man, here's the money for two days. And if you need, uh, here's two days work and two days wages. And if you need any more money, when I come back, I'll take care of it. Now, the interesting thing about that is that Jesus made the Samaritan the hero of the story. Now, remember who Jesus was talking to. (laughs) Jesus was talking to a Jewish man steeped in the law. The Jews hated the Samaritans. Why? Because the Samaritans were a group of people who had been born out of the Jews coming together with foreigners, probably the Assyrians. And so they came together and their offspring were known as the Samaritans. And so the Jewish people looked at that and said, these are not pure Jews. These are half Jews. They're unclean. They're not like us. 
And so the Jews hated the Samaritans so badly that when the Jewish people traveled from northern Israel to southern Israel or from the south back up, they bypassed Samaria. The three main regions there in Israel, Galilee, Samaria, and Judea. But the devoted Jew would not go through Samaria. And so in John chapter four, we read that Jesus one day was traveling from down south in Judea up to Galilee, and the scripture says Jesus needed to go through Samaria. And he went right through what they considered the defiled country, and he met the woman at the well, and he led her to faith in him, and her life was changed. But the point I'm making here is that Jesus made a Samaritan who was hated by the Jews, the hero of the story. What was Jesus saying? Jesus was saying to this Jewish man, you and the other Jews may hate the Samaritans, but you need to understand that I love the Samaritans. I love the Samaritans. I love the Samaritans, in fact, as much as I love you. And that's what Jesus was saying. In fact, in the New Testament, we read that on one occasion, Jesus rebuked his disciples for wanting to call down fire on the Samaritans and have them killed. On another occasion, he healed a Samaritan leper. On another occasion, as I said, he met the Samaritan woman at the well. And on another time, he preached. Jesus preached to the Samaritans. And the Jews think, what are you preaching to the Samaritans? They're not worthy of this. They're... They're not pure like we're pure. And yet Jesus loved the Samaritans. In fact, it's interesting to me that the last words Jesus spoke before he went back to heaven mentions the word Samaria, the part that the Jews could not stand, the people they couldn't stand. Acts 1.8, it's a familiar verse. Notice what Jesus said. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria And Samaria, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. The last region, the last area that Jesus mentioned by name. Now, in Acts chapter 1, verse 9, he ascends to heaven. Verse 8, these are his last words. And the last area that he mentions by name, he said Samaria. What was Jesus saying? Jesus was saying, I love the Samaritan people. Let me just read this to you. I wrote this in my note. God loves all people. Now, I know we know that. But I want to say that today as clearly as I can. God loves all people, people from all backgrounds, all colors. What's the song we learned when we were kids? Red and yellow, black and white. They are what? They're precious in his sight. And so God loves us no matter the color of our skin, the black, the white, got rich or poor, doesn't matter. Educated or uneducated, God loves, God loves, it doesn't make any difference to God. Democrat, Republican, doesn't make any difference. God, we, we put all these labels on people. And we have all these divisive things we put on people. And we say, well, you know, God loves people who are like me. Let me tell you something. God loves people who are like you and God loves people who are unlike you. And God loves people who don't like you and God loves people you don't like. And that's what Jesus was saying to these, uh, to this, to this Jewish man who was a lawyer. It's not with God. It's not about race. It's about grace. And so in our minds, you know, in, in Romans chapter 4, it, said that, it says that we have to, to see things before they happen. We almost have to, 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 with our eyes of faith, seeing things. One pastor said that trusting God means looking beyond what we can see to what God sees. Listen, today in heaven, I'll tell you what it is. It's people with every skin color, from every tribe, from every background, and today they're gathered around the throne of God in heaven and they're singing praises to him. What should the church be? The church should be a 
microcosm of heaven on earth. The church should be on earth what heaven looks like now. We should see in our church people from all backgrounds, Asian background, Hispanic background, Anglo background, black background, uh, African background, Indian background. I did a funeral years ago here and there were about 400 Indians at the funeral. People from India. And they had their long flowing robes on. And I can remember as I was talking to that group that day, I just thought, wouldn't it be a beautiful thing on Sunday if we saw people from who were born in India and all these backgrounds. We have to see that in our minds and pray that God will bring it to pass. But it begins by us understanding that we're here to not only help people, lonely, wounded, and can't get where they need to be. We're here to help all people. Let me keep reading from my notes. God loves people who don't love him back. I mean, God does. God loves the atheist. God loves people who don't believe in him. God loves the atheist. God loves the Jew. God loves the Muslim. God loves the Hindu. God loves the Buddhist. God loves the Baptist, the Methodist, the Catholic, the Episcopalian. God loves everybody, whether they love him back or not. You see, we don't understand the love of God. I don't fully even understand the love of God. I think sometimes we struggle accepting the love of God. We look at our own lives and we look at our own sins and our own shortcomings. We know ourselves better than anybody. I know myself better than you know me. And sometimes I think to myself, God, how could you really love somebody like me? How could you love a sinner like me? And sometimes we struggle to accept the love of God. And yet there are other people who they do the opposite. They don't struggle to accept the love of God. They abuse the love of God. And their idea of the love of God is God loves me. God wants me to be happy. It, whatever I do that makes me happy, that's what God would want because God loves me. And they have abused the love of God. There are, there are some people who, whose idea of God and whose idea of church is, don't tell me anything that will offend me. Don't tell me anything that will rub me the wrong way. Don't deal with any sin that I'm struggling with. God loves me and none of that matters. Their idea is this. Their idea is come as you are and leave as you were. Leave completely unchanged. Friend, that is not the message of the Bible. God loves us as we are, but God loves us too much to keep us that way and let us stay that way. God says to us, Jesus says to us, come to me just like you are and let me clean you up and let me forgive you and let me change you and let me turn you into the person that I want you to be. And yet some people, they don't believe that. They don't think like that. They have abused the love of God and they've, they've taught the love of God but they've not taught the holiness of God and the righteousness of God, and they have a half gospel, and it's just not right. God loves people, but he loves us all too much to let us stay like we are. We have seen, I've been encouraged what we've seen here at the church lately, people coming to Jesus. We saw five baptisms earlier, and uh, people being saved and people's life being changed. I looked this up last week. Did you know that in 2021, now this was good, last year, we, had a, we saw 137 people get saved and went to the family room for their decision. That's great. We praise God for that. This year, and the reason I'm excited and the reason I say we're going in the right direction, well, I have to update this number after the last service, but through the last service, now we still have four months to go in the year, but through the last service to the glory of God, there have been 201 people saved this year at First Baptist Church. We have seen 
69 more people get saved this year than last year, and we've got almost four months remaining in this year. And so it's encouraging to see people coming to Jesus as they are, sin and all, and letting him forgive and cleanse like he's done for the rest of us. It's a beautiful thing. Now, this past week with the, with the death of the Queen of England, Queen Elizabeth, we have been, at least I have been riveted by that. I have followed that as much as, I, as, much as my schedule would allow me to follow that this, the latter part of this week. And in the death of the queen, we have been reminded that God not only loves those of us on this side of the ocean, but God loves people on that side of the ocean too. You know, for those of us who were born in America and who love our country and honor our country, uh, we need to be reminded that thank God that he loves America, but we also need to be reminded God doesn't just love America. He loves Mexico and Canada and Japan, and he loves England. And this past week in the Queen's death, we have seen uh, and we've heard about her deep faith in God. Now, before I get into some of her quotes, and then I'll stop with that, I learned something this week that probably you guys knew. I bet the students knew this, but I didn't know this. Um, do you know the song that we were taught as kids, My Country Tis of Thee? You guys remember that song? Let's just sing that real quick. My country tis of thee, sweet land of liberty, of thee I sing. See, we learned that as kids. We remember that. What I didn't know was where the tune came from. Now, you, know, you may already know it. I didn't know. The tune for that song came from the British National Anthem. And every time the British people get together for a sporting event or for any, any occasion where we would sing our national anthem, they sing their national anthem. And the interesting thing is their national anthem is a prayer. I'm, gonna just, I'm not going to sing the whole song to you because I think that would be more than you could take on this Sunday morning. But I want to sing just this part. God save our gracious King, long live our noble Queen, God save the Queen. They've had to change it now to God save the King because French King Charles now, but it was God. Listen, God save our gracious Queen, long live our noble Queen, God save the Queen. Send her victorious, happy and glorious, long to reign over us. The national anthem is a prayer. Long to reign over us. God saved the queen. God answered that prayer. She lived to be 96 years of age. And I'm going to tell you something else. God saved the queen. And God didn't save the queen because the people prayed that God would save the queen. God saved the queen because a long time ago, the queen herself prayed that God would save her and that God would forgive her. And it's been amazing to read and to be reminded of some of the things Billy Graham had said from their friendship of 60 years and those who knew her. Listen to what the queen has said about her own faith. She says, although we are capable of great acts of kindness, History teaches us that we sometimes need saving from ourselves, from our recklessness, or from our greed. God sent into the world a unique person, neither a philosopher nor a general, important though they are, but a savior with the power to forgive. The queen, now the queen, she kind of felt like she was your grandmother. She says, it is my prayer 
that we might all find room in our lives for the message of the angels and for the love of God through Christ. And everything we read about the queen, it talks about her devotion to the person of Jesus Christ. You say, now the queen doesn't go to, didn't go to a Baptist church. No, she went to the Church of England. She was the leader of the Church of England. But you don't have to be in the Baptist church to be saved. Let me tell you something, friend. There are a lot of people in the Baptist church who are not saved. There are a lot of people in other churches who are saved. It's not this church, that church, yonder church. It is whether or not a person has a relationship with Jesus Christ. And the queen did. The queen knew Jesus. She said on one occasion she was having a conversation with a chaplain. The queen now is talking to a chaplain. And she said, oh, how I wish that the Lord would come in my lifetime. And the chaplain said, your majesty, why is that such an important thing to you? The queen replied with quivering lips, and her whole countenance being lighted up by deep emotion, I should so love to lay my crown at his feet. The queen said, if Jesus would come while I'm still living, while I'm still the queen, I could take this crown off my head and I can put it on his feet. Let me tell you something. The queen, I thought about this. The queen went to heaven on Thursday. And when she did, she stopped being the queen, but she became a princess. You say, it looks like she's been demoted from queen to princess. No, she's been promoted because she went to an earthly kingdom, to a heavenly kingdom, and now she is a princess in the kingdom of God, worshiping Jesus at the throne this morning because of her deep and abiding faith in him. On Friday, and if you've not seen this, I would encourage you to pull this up online, one of the most moving tributes that I've ever seen any son or child give to their mother was given by now King Charles. It's less than 10 minutes. You can pull it up and you ought to watch the whole thing. And he's talking about how much he loved his mother and how faithful she has been and what a role model she has been. And, and in his British accent, he's talking about his mama and how now she's been reconciled with his beloved papa. And you're hearing this, and it's touching, it's pulling on the heart. And at the very end of his remarks about his mother, first speech is king, the king of England. And he ended his first address to the nation by quoting Shakespeare from the play Hamlet. And here's what King Charles said to his beloved mother. He said, may flights of angels sing thee to thy eternal rest. You know, I think about the queen on Thursday there in that beautiful castle in Scotland and when her heart beat for the last time, what happened? Well, according to the New Testament, here's what happened. Jesus came to that room where she was and Jesus brought the angels with him and Jesus took the queen's soul out of her body and Jesus with those angels ushered her into the presence of God and Jesus said to the father, Father, this is Elizabeth. She confessed me on earth. I'm confessing her to you in heaven and Jesus brought the queen, the princess now, to her eternal rest. I'm asking you today as we think about reaching our community, our message to the community is, and my message and God's message to you today is, you don't have to be alone. God can heal you of your wounds. 
And if you will come to Jesus Christ just like you are, he will save you, he will forgive you, he will begin the process of changing you. And one of these days, Jesus and flights of angels will take you to your heavenly home where you'll be with him forever and forever and forever. Amen.